Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. The winners are the, the people with the most stories. One of the great things about traveling is the people that you meet. I've slept in bus stations, like yeah. I've slept on people's floors. And it's already on fire, and then there's just a gigantic, huge explosion, like out of a Hollywood movie. It's not right or wrong, it's just different. We hired like 10 Chinese prostitutes to come be our audience. We were kidnapped by nuns in Puerto Rico. <laughs> not a good idea to be high when you're packing. You forget a lot of stuff. I got swine flu. By the time you've lived through it, it's just a good story. Hey everybody, welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Siegel. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Polly Latovsky. Before we get to Polly, I have a few announcements to make. First and foremost, our website is TravelTalesPodcast.com. You can go there, you can see photos of our guests. You can see articles that I've written and articles that some of the guests have written. You can see links to guests' websites and all their social media. And you can see links to our social media. By that, I mean Travel Tales Podcast on Instagram, Travel Tales Pod on Twitter, There's links to our Facebook page, Travel Tales Podcast there. Follow us on all those locations. Give us a like. Also on our site, there's links to Stitcher Radio, Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify, iHeartRadio, basically wherever you get your podcasts. And if you follow us on any of those platforms, I ask you to please, please give us a good rating. That helps more people find the show, boosts our presence, and that's a cool thing to do. And I would very much appreciate it. If you think you'd be right for the show or you know somebody who might be right for the show, or maybe you want to write me and say nice things, maybe you have some travel questions, you can write me at TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. That's TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. Let's get to this week's guest, Polly Latovsky. I was referred to Polly through former guest of the show, Rosie Tran, who correctly assumed that Polly would be a good fit for the show. Some 20-odd years ago, Polly took off with a goal to walk around the world. She accomplished that goal, and it took her five years to do it. She wrote a book about it called 3MPH, as in 3 miles per hour, as in her average walking speed. And writing the book led to speaking engagements and also starting a company that helps people self-publish their own books. She currently lives in Denver now, where she spends most of her time, and Airbnbs an apartment in her house, which you can rent, and you can hear her amazing travel tales in person. Hope you like cats. (laughs) But if you go to TravelTalesPodcast.com, we'll have links to Polly's website, which is PollyLetofsky.com, L-E-T-O-F-S-K-Y. And you can check her out, see where she's at. You can buy the book. You can see photos and videos of her and get to know more about her. But I was glad I got to meet her. And I think you will be too. So please enjoy my conversation with Polly Letofsky. Well, Polly, thanks for uh, thanks for doing this. I know you're busy out there in Denver. You're a motivational speaker and an author. And what else did I miss? Yes, the speaking actually isn't happening so much anymore with, <laughs> with COVID. Yeah, you and me. But, I'm a comedian, so yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that take a that took a dive. But um, what I'm doing now, I've been doing for about ten years now, is when. I I facetiously say, although it is true that it took me five years to walk around the world, six years to write the book about it. And then I got ripped off in the publishing world. So I launched myself 10 years, um, 10 years ago into starting a publishing company where authors maintain all their rights and royalties. So we've done about 500 books now and we are growing and boy, I, 
you know, COVID schmovid, we had a great year. Um, that's great. We're holed up and ready to write their book. <laughs> so and ready to read them, apparently. <laughs> yes, and and read. So that's so you already mentioned the book, so let's get right to it. Uh, you wrote a book about walking around the entire world. So yes. tell people the name of the book and where they can still find it. I'm assuming through your own publishing company. <laughs> well, I'm glad you asked. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> My book is called Three Miles Per Hour, The Adventures of One Woman's Walk Around the World. And uh, like I said, it took me five years to walk and then six years to write the book. I'd never written a book. How do you write a book? And uh, you don't want it to be a series of anecdotes topped on top of each other, you know. So, um, you know, what's the arcing storyline and this kind of thing? But, uh, yeah, you can buy it anywhere books are sold. But, um yeah, I had I had a lot of why it's right here, my Oh, finger. there it is. <laughs> Gee, you just happen to have a copy right there handy. How, how fortunate. <laughs> what good timing. So, yeah. So you'll see there that there's a uh, buggy. Uh I, I pushed my things around in a buggy. It's just a baby a baby carrier. They took out the sling and created a backpack on wheels there. And naturally I started calling him Bob because that was the name of the company. So they splashed their logo all over the front. Naturally I started calling him Bob. So Bob and I hit the road together. <laughs> so how long did the walk take? And the walk took, Oh, go ahead. No, but go ahead. How long did it take? It took one day shy of five years. So wow. it was five years. And then I wanted to finish on obviously the five-year anniversary, I was so close to it anyway, but there was something in that area of town that was going on. So I couldn't, so I was like, ah, close enough. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was one day shy of five years that it took me to walk and, from Vale to East Vale. <laughs> wow. Scenic route, yes. And the timeline, it was late nineties, right? And this was, and 9-11 happened while you were out there as well. So what was, what was the time span? What were the years? I left on August 1st, 1999, when the world is at relative peace. And relative is the key. Relative. Yeah. yeah. And then, it, of course, it took me five years. I didn't know at the time. I thought it was going to be roughly then. But if you put yourself halfway through, that's exactly. I was in the Muslim world, my first Muslim country, right as 9-11 struck. So I was halfway around at that time. I was in Malaysia when 9-11 struck. And when I look back now at the whole journey, I can see my turning points, right? And of course, that was a major one. Uh, it, my my first countries then, if I left from Colorado and headed west, I uh, went through Colorado, Arizona, California, then went down through New Zealand. And I had lived in New Zealand for a number of years. So I had this built-in support group there. So that was fantastic. Then came up through Australia, still English speaking, very comfortable territory. So the culture is the same. Then I go into Singapore, again, not too far off my culture. They speak English. And then I cross the border into Malaysia. And it was like, boom. <laughs> it was like, and let the foreign leg of this journey begin. Yeah. Because you cross that bridge, you, you're in a different world. And I sort of planned it that way. Um, in that if I go that route, I'm going to spend the first two years in a sort of familiar territory and I can get used to that lifestyle and really kind of work out the tweaks. And by the time I really hit foreign territory, um, you know, I'll have sort of my legs underneath me and, 
and uh, know what to expect so I can kind of take on the next hurdles. And, and uh, well, I didn't know what hurdles were coming. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you just can't plan on that, right? Right. Well, the number one question for all this has got to be, uh, who funded this? And basically, you had uh, you had funding from uh, I think you had sponsors, didn't you? And and you had support systems from was it the Lions Club and other places? Yeah. So what happened was um, I worked for three years, working three and four jobs. Seriously, I was working a hundred ten hours a week. So I had my savings account. And then what, what were you doing? Oh, I worked at a hotel sales marketing. And then I worked at I was in Vail. So I did the ski school thing on the weekends. And then I had a job at night at a pub selling T-shirts. I mean, any job I could have that I could squeeze in this many more hours. You know, this is before Internet. You know, so you can't, you know, you couldn't work at home anywhere you wanted. So, yeah, I was squeezing in all kinds of jobs. Okay, I have from two to four on Saturdays available still. (laughs) What can I do? So, anyway, what I discovered once I hit the road is that people were, were really helping me out all along the way. And, of course, when I first started, I thought, well, that's because I'm still close to home. They saw it in the paper. So it won't be that way in, say, Arizona. Well, it was that way in Arizona. So then I would, it won't be that way once I hit, you know, New Zealand. Well, of course it was. I'd known people there. I'd lived there. So it was like, well, it won't be that way when I hit Australia. (laughs) Of course it was. (laughs) So the sort of the friendliness and the helpfulness of the world never really lessened at all. But a big turning point was when I was I was probably my fourth day in Australia when I met this woman on the side of the road who saw me pushing my buggy and looking lost because I'm very good at that looking lost thing. And she just came up to me on the side of the road and said, "Um, can I help you? You look lost. And I said, well, yeah, I was looking for the town park. I thought I'd go camp in the town park. And she said, well, she heard my funny accent and said, what are you doing here? So I explained what I was doing and, and introduced myself. And she said, well, Fancy that. She goes, let me introduce myself. My name is Margaret, and I am the president of the local Lions Club. All the Lions Clubs have got to get involved with this. So why don't you come home with me? Okay. So I follow Margaret home, and and she took me out for this fundraising event. She took me out to the pub because the pub in Australia towns is where everything happens, right? There is nothing else in these small rural communities. So sure enough, she took me out to the pub and the place is packed and she got everyone's attention, stood up on this stool. And she said, I want to introduce you to Polly. This is what she's doing. Because I did my my walk for breast cancer. So we'll talk about that in a second. But she said, all the funds raised here, stay here and help Australian families. So let's give her, you know, let's show her a little Aussie spirit. And she plucked the hat off a guy's head and started passing a hat around and the bartender announced to the cheering crowd, we've just raised $332 for the Breast Cancer Network. Yay! <laughs> and then she passed me to the next Lions Club up the road, and they took me out to the pub and passed a hat around, and they passed me on to the next Lions Club, and they did the same. And next thing you know, I'm doing a 2,000-mile pub crawl up the east coast of Australia. was never alone. People with me helping me. The whole country was essentially um, at my back 
whether they, you know, because there's only one road in Australia, <laughs> so, you know, so they would uh, kind of cheer me on and throw food out the window and pick up my check at the diner. And <laughs> and uh, the Lions Clubs became a national sponsor and then eventually an international sponsor. And your question to go back to how did you fund this? You know, eventually it came down to the Lions Clubs, you know, I hardly spent a dime. Oh, wow. That's great. A lot of those countries. Did you start in, like in Sydney and then work your way up the coast and then go up to like Darwin and then up to up to mm-hmm. uh, uh, Malaysia or Singapore from there? Uh, close. I started uh, as far south as I could get, which is uh, just right outside Melbourne, which is a Port Phillips Bay, I believe. Mm-hmm. And then um, made my through, way through, um, you know, up to Sydney and then up to um Gosh, I'm forgetting the name, but north of Cairns, anyway. I oh yeah, into Darwin, but then I flew into Singapore. Okay, so you said you this is for um, breast cancer, and that's how this started out. Was this your own experience with breast cancer, or family members, or friends that suffered from it? Well, what happened was um, I'd always wanted to do the walk since I was 12 years old. So I got this idea in my head when I was 12. I think I lived a pretty idyllic childhood, right? It was that childhood where, uh, you know, the parents would say, Just get out of the house, go entertain yourself. I'll see you at dinner. <laughs> right? yeah. so, so you and your buddies had to go make up games and climb trees and play spud and kickball and all this, right? So that was my childhood. And when I was 12, I realized that there was this whole different kind of world going on around me that isn't, you know, doesn't have a day filled with kickball and stickball and climbing trees. And that was through the newspaper. So every morning I would get up and read the Minneapolis Star and Tribune because I grew up in Minneapolis and read about all these places that don't have the, you know, a 12-year-old is living a very different life. and that was 1974 when I was 12. And so there's a lot going on, particularly the, the end of the Vietnam war was happening. So I was reading a lot about sort of the Southeast Asia, Vietnam, you know, how are kids living this different life? So a 12 year old's mind getting their head around how the world ticks. And then one day reading the paper, I see this story of a man. Well, it was just a picture of a man pulling a buggy behind him down an empty road. And I read the caption and it says, David Kunst walking down Highway 6 in Colorado on his way home to Minnesota to become the first man to walk around the world. (laughs) I'm like, I swear I had this thought. I thought, I didn't know you could think of such a thing if you were from Minnesota. (laughs) (laughs) Like you had to be born somewhere else. (laughs) And I felt I felt the same way about comedy when I was uh, growing up in Illinois. And it was like, oh no, you can't just get into it. You have right. to be from New York or uh, Hollywood or something. You didn't know you could just do it, you know, until you see somebody. I know some people just have to see someone doing it. You hear this a lot about uh, any kind of performers, and like, oh, I didn't know I could do it until I saw so and so do it, and then right. you're like, oh, this is possible. This is, you know. And then when I went overseas for the first time, I was staying in youth hostels and I would meet these guys who were traveling around the world. It's like, oh, you can just do that. You can just, <laughs> like, like my small town brain didn't. Right. You know, and it's so like, well, this guy's my age. He seems to be, you know, you, you just assume you have to be super rich or something, you know. Right. 
Right. I swear. And when people have that epiphany, I swear they're in the 12, 13 year old neighborhood. There's yeah. something that happens at that age where you start realizing. Were you that age? You think? Well, I have this theory that everything, whatever hits you between the ages of like eight and 18 kind of stays with you for your whole life. Like if I asked you what your favorite music was or your favorite songs or your favorite movies or whatever, probably most of them you, you would have seen between those ages, but just because we're so impressionable and everything's new and everything just hits you hard. You know, your first breakup, remember your first breakup, you think I'm going to die. Oh, I'll never, I'll never have it again. I'll never because, love again. Yeah. Right. Cause it's so new. Everything just hits you like hard and whether it's travel or music or, you know, your favorite TV shows are probably one the ones you loved back then, you know, and you'll always come back to it. You know, whatever, whatever you were into between that, those years, you're just, that's your comfort zone. Like I find myself during the pandemic, you know, you're home alone. Like they, they say they saw this upswing and people rewatching movies from their childhood and nostalgia and stuff like that. Cause it's, it's comfort. You know what I mean? Right. We just always go back to that, you know, and play your favorite music and that kind of thing. It, it immediately sets you back because we're so impressionable at that age and, and our minds are just like opening up so much. Okay. Oh, gosh. Now I'm going to think about that for <laughs> Thanks a lot, Mike. What's your favorite movie? See, and then it's going to be if I ask you to name 10, 10 of them, probably at least half of them you will have seen for the first time between those ages. I'm sure probably. Yeah, and uh, especially the the music from yeah the comfort music. Yeah, you go back to yeah. Come on, the seventies. The Beatles are still selling albums because <laughs> they're still great. You know. Yeah, the Eagles and Boston. Yeah, <laughs> see, there you that go. Was a great music era, though. Yeah, it was. It was, and yeah. So if you. Um, did you go to uh, college and with the idea that you were going to get an international travel or you worked in hotels? I mean, that's hospitality related. Yeah, not for a while, though. So when I came out of high school, I went to college because that's what you're supposed to do. Right. Yeah. <laughs> for no, no great love of uh, or great direction, I should say. But uh, immediately when I got into college, I started looking around for one of those foreign travel programs, you know, like you go overseas for a semester or whatever. And uh, so I did that. And the only thing left was to go spend a semester down in Mexico. So I did that. So uh, that was real foreign territory versus, um, say, I don't know, going to Australia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> foreign, right. But um, so did that. And I got to tell you, so this idea of walking around the world was so outlandish. It was so outside the box that I didn't think it could really happen. Right. So it was always in the back of my head, not the forefront of my head. But um, I, I, it was always there. And I never talked about it. I never said it out loud. And it just in my 30s, pulling into my 30s, I was then living in Colorado. And what happened was a number of women in my immediate world were being diagnosed with breast cancer. So... I was like, you know, getting nervous about this breast cancer thing. Like you can get it if someone coughs on you or something. I just didn't know anything about it. So I 
I go to a doctor and I said, listen, I want one of those mammogram things, you know, and, and I'm worried about breast cancer. And he said, you don't have to worry about getting breast cancer. You can't get breast cancer if it doesn't run on your mother's side of the family, which just for the record is really, really, really bad information. I now know, but I didn't then. So I went, well, hey, there's some guy standing there in a white jacket and a stethoscope around his neck. I'll believe whatever he tells me. So I said, well, that's great. So uh, I went back to work after that doctor's appointment and I told my colleagues, my friends, what this doctor had said and they really let me have it. And they said, of course you can get breast cancer. Every woman only, they said it at 10 decibels higher. <laughs> so they, of course you can get breast cancer. Every woman in the world is at risk for getting breast cancer. And they really let me have it. And now at the same time, it was kind of this magical intersection of all that breast cancer stuff going on. And at the same time, I was at a library there in Vail. I was living in Vail, Colorado. I was in the library and I see this magazine article, a cover page of this woman walking and it said uh, Fiona Campbell first woman to walk around the world and I marvel going wow someone actually did that wow and then a part of me was sad like oh I could have done that well why can't I my dream was never to be the first woman right Mm -hmm. so I saw that and uh maybe a couple months later there was an article on page like A33 B of the newspaper, <laughs> like mm-hmm. this big, but I happened to see it. And it said that in fact, Fiona Campbell had um, admitted to accepting rides here and there. So, um, you know, she was stripped of the title. Now I don't know if there was an official title anyway, but nonetheless. So I thought, well, hey, maybe now's my chance. Okay. And again, the dream was never to be the first woman, but I said, at least she gave me the idea that yes, it can be done. Like we talked about earlier. So, so that's when I decided to do it. Wow. Okay. So in the planning stages and from the actual, I'm leaving, how long did it take? Like a year of planning, two years or? It was about three years altogether. Yeah. And pre-internet, this is not an easy thing to do because you can't like make contacts so easy around the world. Oh yeah. Cause I remember, uh, and when I say three years, it was three, three years from, yeah, I think I want to do this to actually leaving. I don't want to say it was all, that was all planning. Cause there was a lot of time that I had to get really used to the idea as well. Um, so anyway, I remember walking home this night, walking home from work, like 10 o'clock at night, walking down this recreation trail, you know, those moments, you know, exactly where you were. And it was after that day that the doctor had told me this bad information. I was walking home two miles, talking out loud to myself, which is a great strategy, by the way, if you're walking alone at night. <laughs> but just like, uh, that's what I'll do that walk for that I've always wanted to do. That's what I'll, and my head started spinning. I'll walk for breast cancer. And there's obviously a lot of bad information going on out there. Breast cancer is in every nook and cranny of the world. It's not just in America and the big cities around the world. It's everywhere. Oh, my goodness. My head was spinning. And I went out and I got, now this is probably 1997-ish, 96-ish. So we didn't have, no one had their computers yet, you know. (laughs) Yeah. 
that still that was coming into the late 90s. Everyone was jumping on board with that. So I went to the Barnes and Noble, got all the maps of the world. And let me take you back. But you remember maps had the, the red dots from this dot to that dot. And it had the little mileage next to it. Yeah. <laughs> right? I had the map spread around the world and I'm going red dot to red dot, writing it down the mileage and how long this will take. And, and, uh, I try to explain kids what a godsend GPS is for traveling and just getting not getting lost, you know, and you, I'm glad I, I came up in the age where I learned to read a map and I still love maps. I love paper maps and I love looking at, if only for the fact that you can lose your signal. I don't think a lot of kids realize that, that, you know, don't, sometimes your phone goes out and sometimes you can't get reception or whatever. And, and you're going to have to learn to, a sense of direction. And thank God I, I learned that. It's not even been around that long, but I'm like, how did we live without the GPS? Yeah. You, know, you go next door without your phone, you feel naked. It's like, how do I get home? <laughs> <laughs> so did, um, when you went, I know, like, I've been to, you know, throughout Asia and, and a number of Muslim countries and things. And um, this uh, young, young blonde white lady walking through their town must have caused a bit of um, uh, undue uh, attraction, <laughs> unwanted attention, maybe, perhaps. Yeah. How did you uh, survive that? And what were some of the, the scariest moments and creepiest moments? Were you followed? Yeah, sometimes I was followed and, um, you know, there are probably a lot of things that went on that I don't know about, okay? Uh, For example, I remember right after 9-11, so I'm in Malaysia, right? Now, there were crowds of people walking with me every day. I was like Forrest Gump out there. (laughs) I mean, there were hundreds of Lions Club members and Rotary Club members and locals that just came and walked with us. Big crowd of people every day, all day walking from village to village. And um, and that was like the first half of Malaysia. And then the second half of Malaysia, which is um, not nearly as populated, the crowds kind of weighed up, but there were still people with me every day. Ironically, I'm kind of a slow walker, so I was always at the tail end. And... Um, all of a sudden, out of the blue, the police, right after 9-11, the police were at my hotel door all night uh, for probably a week after 9-11 as I'm heading north. The police were now with this crowd, just kind of following up on the tail end. And so I would ask these Lions Club members, you know, why are these guys at my door? Is there some kind of threat? Is there, Well, we don't know where they came from and they won't talk to us. So who? that's a big mystery to this day is who called them? Why? Um, nobody knows. Was it the American embassy? Was it the Malaysian government? Was it, you know, in fact, the Lions Clubs? But uh, uh, what was the original question? I don't know. I'm launching it. To I someone. mean, if you were followed by, you know, the, the scary, uh, the scary tales are followed by crowds of creepy dudes. It, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> creepy dudes is right. Um, well, there was the whole Malaysia thing right after 9-11. Um, I remember in, in Turkey, there were a few incidents where I was alone and people would start following me. Now, maybe they're just walking to the bus stop, right? <laughs> and that just happened to be the same direction. But um, 
I always had some kind of pepper spray on me. And I remember as I would enter each country, I would learn this list of words, right? You got to know your numbers. You got to know your salutations, directions. Because if you're going to say, how do I get to fill in the blank, then I better understand the answer. So I had to learn all those things. I added to my my vocabulary, stop right there. (laughs) So I turn around to this guy, (laughs) stop right there. And he just stopped. (laughs) He's probably late for work or something, <laughs> but, but my senses are on like hypersensitive. Right. So he's probably still telling that story. This woman turned <laughs> around and just told me to stop right there. <laughs> and probably what's halted language that doesn't flow easily. Um, I did get uh assaulted, if you want to call it that, like three times, meaning uh, like the police were called. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and two of those were in Turkey and one was in Greece. Um, again, because of the language, well, I know two of them were just, I knew what was going on and there's no question, you know, they weren't walking to the bus stop. Okay. <laughs> but then one of them, this guy literally just walked out of the forest and uh, started flailing. And that's another mystery. It's like, was he, what was he saying to me? Was he like, he tried to grab me, but then I turned around and yelled at him in English words. He will never understand. And, and he stopped and stared at me. So he wasn't trying to be aggressive back, but what was he saying? It's just a big mystery. Um, but as far as my whiteness and, and all of that, I was covered up pretty darn well. And it wasn't to hide whiteness. It was just to sort of try to blend in and be respectful and this and that, like through, um, you know, say through India. India can be tough. You know, I, went, I was in a group going through India for a few weeks and, you know, we had women from uh, Australia in, in my group and you know, the stares that they got. And sometimes they would just, you know, they all wanted photos with them. And sometimes with me, you know, they'd ask them to hold their baby like they're a witch or something. I don't know. I don't know what was that. It was very strange. And Or sometimes it just touched their hair. It was very oh, odd. I got a little of that too in um, in Vietnam when I was there. People just wanted you? to ask. They, they just came out of the woodwork in the park one day and just asked me if they could take a photo with me. And then all of a sudden... Everybody wanted a photo with the white guy walking through. It was really weird. But, yeah, they just don't see that many, I guess, or meet them. I guess. I walked right in India, right through this whole tribal region where, you know, no tourist goes. And I'm sure they're still talking about it, you know. Right. But they still make, like, bowls out of the leaves of trees. They'd pull down a leaf and they'd make a bowl. And they're like, see, this is how we eat. And they gave me the bowl. You know, and that stuff was really cool. Um, but uh, nonetheless. <laughs> yeah. So you're walking through these places and you're just walking through small towns and in the middle of the country. What And it starts getting dark. So what would what were your accommodations? Were you camping? Were you finding like uh, inns or uh, what was what was your sleeping arrangements like? It was uh, really different from so country to country, but any country that the Lions Clubs were involved, they would take 
pretty good care of me. You know, they would put me up at one of their homes or let's say through Malaysia, boy, they, they put me up at the nicest hotels right up through Malaysia. And in fact, in through Thailand too, and tried to outdo each other. (laughs) They're like, where did they put you up last night? Well, they put me up at this hotel and got me a massage. Oh, we put you up at this hotel and give you two massages. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I was spoiled rotten right up through Malaysia and Thailand. Um, it, through Europe, I was completely on my own. I didn't get any Lions Club help. And that was uh, as as night was falling, I had to find a place to you know do the free camping, which was just find a place under a tree. Those were great spots. Um, but, you know, you had like 15 minutes to figure out a place before you had um, just enough light left to figure out where you could pitch your tent. And then 15 minutes before it was too dark to figure that out. And there were some times that I would feel around with my foot because there was no, no light and just say, okay, well, that seems flat enough. <laughs> you know, who knows if you're in some snake infested forest or something, but uh, yeah, there were times like that. I mean, the light, I had a headlight, but it would go out like in dramatic form. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it took five years, was it, were you gone five years the whole time or did you come back and started back where you were or did it, well, you were just five years straight, you were gone away from America, away Pretty much straight. I did have to come back because I initially, without going into all the detail, I initially had someone that was helping me on the U.S. side, meaning they were finding sponsors. They were taking in any sort of um, media requests or just being in touch, mailing things, right? Sort of an assistant slash, you know, manager. And that didn't work out. So I had to stop my walk, come back. I was in L.A. because my dad was living there. And I, I said, how could I do this completely on my own? And, um, and so I was back there for whatever it was, five months, six months, and then hit the road again and never came back again until I landed back. Wow. So, yeah, I, I'd been gone then for a long time. And by the time I got back into the U.S., into New York, you know, by then America had been through a lot. And of course I'd been through a lot and it was, I had, I don't know, sort of seen the places where the immigrants to America had come, you know, like we're talking about Eastern Europe where (laughs) both our families are sort of from and then all of Europe and how they made their way to the U S and, and brought their things with them, you know, like the word cookie, Thank you, Dutch, for bringing us that <laughs> word. By the way, thank you, uh, Greece, for the word Oreo um, and, and cafe and just all these great words that we don't even know came from yeah. elsewhere. But they Romans just, for our language and Latin, whatever. Yes. So anyway, so arriving in the U.S., it's like I almost had uh, lived that journey in, in uh you know, in great lessons. Okay. So you land back in uh, New York and mm-hmm. you're back in America for the first time or, you know, I don't know really in five years. Uh, you left. It was a different president. There was a, it was po- pre 9-11. A lot of change. You come back. But what's the first thing you want to do? Is there something you want to like eat or um, what did you miss the most? 
I wanted a bagel, something. (laughs) Well, good thing you're in New York. Perfect. Did not have bagels around the world, right? And so before before I landed, I sort of put the. There wasn't Facebook, social media. There wasn't anything like that. So I just kind of emailed in bulk friends. I need a bagel when I hit New York. Where's the <laughs> best bagel in New York? Which is the, you know, a question all New Yorkers ask. Oh right? God. Now, yeah. You're going to sit back and get eight pages of, you know, <laughs> you got to go to this place. No, that place stinks. You got to go to the other one. So I make the pilgrimage to Katz's Deli. Yeah, of course. There you go. I was going to say Zabar's maybe you went or uh, H&H. That was the other one. H&H Bagels. I'm sure I had those on my list. Oh, I'm sure you did. But I had to go to the When Harry Met Sally, you know, bagel place. Oh, okay. I've seen there. So that's why I decided on that one. Had a bagel and uh, geez, you know, that was awesome. So. (laughs) So was there any kind of like you know, how was your health during this whole thing? I mean, it's a lot of walking. I don't know how many pairs of shoes you must have gone through. Did you have shoe sponsors? That seemed like a pretty sweet thing to do. I did have a shoe sponsor. Get a load of this. So I had three years, you know, I had decided, by the way, August 1st, 1999, I'm leaving. I decided this years in advance. I know I'm getting off topic here, but I remember even my, my boss at the time at the hotel, he was giving me a promotion. I said, okay, thank you so much. I'd love this promotion, but I got to tell you, I'm going to be leaving on August 1st, 1999. <laughs> it's like years in advance. He's like, sure, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> but I did. Anyway, so I had about three <laughs> years to uh, check out the different shoes and everything. So every six months, I would go get a new pair of shoes and try them out for the six months. And, and I decided new balance was what I had to have new balance. So I, I send, you know, notes off to sponsorships and in the marketing department and, and um, corporate giving and the CEO himself out in new balance, which is based in Boston. And they all turned me down. I have this pile of rejection letters, right. But I have to have new balance shoes because they fit me the best. And even if I got another one for free, you know, that's my health at stake. Got to have new balance. So I paid for them. So then I land in Melbourne, Australia, and I'm chatting with the Breast Cancer Network Australia executive director. That's who's going to be the, the financial beneficiary there. And we're chatting and she happened to mention, you know, who's your shoe sponsor? So I told her this story. I got to pay for them because I got to have them. She says, you know, I know the president of New Balance here in Australia. Oh, he's right up the street. Let me give him a call. (laughs) So he (laughs) says, let's meet for coffee. So like right then and there, we met for coffee. And he says, well, how many pairs of shoes do you think you'll need? And I said, every four months, maybe a new pair. He says, "Uh, no, every two months. I said, four months is really fine. No, every two months, we got to have you get a new pair of shoes. And so I had a contact in Melbourne, Australia, where whenever I needed a new pair and I could get an address, she would then order them from Boston. Boston shipped them to Melbourne and then back to me wherever I was. Even when I was back in the U.S., I'd contact my contact in Melbourne. She would order them from Boston. They went to Melbourne and back to the U.S. to wherever I was. Picture of inefficiency, but I tell you, (laughs) it's New Balance Australia that is my sponsor. That's great. (laughs) Isn't that great? And I still wear them today. Actually, that one right now. Oh, there they are. So was there any kind of like uh, 
health scares? Did you ever have like your knee problems or any? Uh, how about food poisoning? Anything like that? I did have food poisoning three times, which is just quick and dirty and painful and you keep moving. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, I had that three times. And even those were Australia and Luxembourg and Missouri. So really not in India. No, that's I what did. got me. India got me. I'll bet it gets everyone. So magically yeah. <laughs> I did not. I was a fanatic. I had this whole big tub of the uh, wetlands and I was constantly, I was just OCD about keeping hands clean. And so I did okay in India. I was getting queasy towards the end. <laughs> queasy, but uh, I managed it okay. How was your health after all this? I mean, did you, during this time, did you uh, lose weight? Did you like, uh, I don't know, did you have any kind of issues in terms, did you ever get sick, get, get a cold or a flu and lay you up for a few days? I really just had my three bouts with food poisoning again, just quick and painful. Otherwise I never got sick. I did get a carpal tunnel a couple of times just from pushing my buggy, like, you know, and it, at some points it's 70 pounds when say in Europe, I had to go up over mountain passes and I had all the camping gear and everything. So I had, I had that and some weird rashes just from the sun and malaria medicine mix. Yeah. Um, but I did okay. So get a load of this. So five years, I'm living literally on the road and, and really am not sick at all. And I get it. I get back, I get a job in the hotel business and I'm in the interview. I'm bragging all over myself. <laughs> what do I never get sick? <laughs> they hire me I am sicker than a dog like the like the third day in I have a fever of 103 I am just in bad shape and I was like I will be damned if I'm not going in after that big scene I made (laughs) yeah well I bet uh, it was probably your reaction to being indoors so much I really believe so and what happened was of course I had to you know dress for now this corporate city job so now I've got like these they weren't quite pumps but they were dress shoes nonetheless and within a couple of weeks I had one of my uh, I think it was my big toenail it turned black and fell off and here I walked (laughs) all this way and had no problem at all with that so you you need a new balance to make some heels that's (laughs) what you (laughs) so did um what did you learn going through i mean after all this was done getting back to real world quote unquote real world and getting a job again that must have been a tough adjustment i mean how do you how do you just come back it's almost like coming back from the war (laughs) how do you i mean that's be a mental thing you have to wrap your head around sleeping in the same bed every night going to the same place to work every day. I mean, how did you adjust? You know, I was in touch with a lot of people like, you know, throughout my journey that had done things similar to this, you know, mostly biking around the world. And that takes two years. People that have biked across the country to which I say, Oh, that's cute. That's yeah. (laughs) Oh, just one country. Oh, wow. Precious. But, um, They would always tell me, you know, I'm worried for you when you land, because that's the toughest part of the whole journey is getting adjusted afterwards and reassimilating. But 
there are a few things that are very different from what they did and what I did. And one is the, the timing involved. I mean, being on the road for six months or eight months, even two years, the novelty is very, very much alive. And my novelty, frankly, was gone. <laughs> <laughs> it was dead in the water, right? Novelty complete. <laughs> so I was really, really ready, very, very ready for the next chapter, which was settling in, creating a community around me, getting my friends and neighbors and sitting around a coffee shop on Saturday morning and gossiping and blah, blah, blah. I mean, I just wanted, I wanted to settle and, and, um, yeah, have my have walk around, walk around without a map. That was yeah. a big thing, is because I had had a map in my hand for five years. Where am I going? Where am I going? Where and being completely lost without it. And iPhones did not exist even when I landed in two thousand four. So that was a really big thing, is to have the food I wanted in my fridge, to have a laundry basket, to have a blender with the blueberries in the freezer <laughs> and you know, uh, with, and walk without a map. These were, um, uh, uh, nesting, I think they call it because when I landed, I was then into my 40, I was 42, almost 43 when I finished my walk and I had been unsettled for a long time. I was unsettled before I hit the walk. I was very much looking forward to it. I remember when I was in London and had a year and a half left you know, just thinking, wow, I got a year and a half left. This is going to be a push. I'm going to push it. It was never, not one single time did I have the thought, I gave it a good shot. I'm, I'm going to call it a day. Never, not one single time. But the last year and a half was a push. It was like the best of times, the worst of times, very Dickensian because I, I was in, it was the best of times. I was walking across my country to finish it up, you know, friends that would come out and visit and I could stay with them. And I re I arranged my route so I could stay with friends and see them and, and get to know my own country after those five years. It was the most fabulous time of my life, hands down, walking across this country. But it was the worst of times because I was mentally exhausted and wanted to nest and so it was a push every day. Do you think about now I mean, with when you see all these travel bloggers and influencers and everything like that and um, Instagram and all the if you had tried this now, how different your your trip would be? I mean, you probably have your own YouTube channel and you'd be making videos every day and you'd, you could report to your friends and make calls from anywhere around the world. And what a difference that would be. Do you think? in a way it would be, I don't know, less rewarding or. Absolutely. You really? know, me and my tribe of these people, cause there are a couple of um, groups on Facebook of people that have walked across the country <laughs> to which I say, well, that's all you got a whole page. There's that many of you. you I oh, mean, yeah. walk yeah. across the country or the world. The country. <laughs> yeah. Oh, right. Okay. So you just come in there like you're the big man. Oh, hey. Oh, oh are you just country walkers? I'm a world walker. Yeah. But how uh, adorable for you walking across one country. Cute. So, uh, no, there, there's a couple of uh, groups of us, but um, 
I don't know. What was the question? <laughs> I mean, can you imagine doing this now? Oh, yes, that's where we were. So we talk about it a lot, a, a lot in that, you know, we see people today that, you know, if they got a sponsorship, the sponsorship includes, you will tweet this many times, you will post this many times, you will do X amount of Facebook lives. And, and so they're walking and they're missing everything that they probably went and did it for. I feel blessed that in fact, I looked hard for a sponsor and never got, you don't, you don't get financial sponsors, by the way, <laughs> as a single person event, you just don't get them. So um, I feel blessed. I think I went at the exact right time because I wasn't held prisoner by these distractions so I could be in the moment and go out to discover the world as I wanted to discover it. Equally, I went in August of 1999 is when I left. So we had cell phones, although they were very, you know, by today's standards, primitive. Yeah. But you could make a call. You couldn't yet make. They were not smart. They were yeah, dumb phones. They were you couldn't make an international call. Texting didn't exist yet, this kind of thing. But that was changing fast. So um, we had websites. Um, and internet cafes. Internet cafes. Yes. That's where yeah. I, yeah, I went to a lot of those. Yes, those were brilliant. You just walk in. <laughs> oh, so you just pop in off the street and be in touch with people and then walk out the door and keep going. Yeah, you'd really just get your email. I mean, that's what you went and you know, just, and here, just let me, let me send a message. You're, you're paying by the minute <laughs> and you gotta go tell everybody I'm alive and get my mail and okay, move on. Yes. Yes. But I remember, uh, I it, throughout the, that three years prior to leaving when I was training, I was like, um, how am I going to get my emails? I'll have to call dad in LA and just say, dad, log on. Cause do you remember when emails first came out? And they were assigned to that computer. Do you remember that? It didn't last that long, but that's how, that's how they started. Oh, God. So you had to go back to your computer and log on at night or something. Well, okay. I think I had, I had an AOL address. Oh, that yeah. Was You've got mail. Or com, was it? A com, CompuServe? CompuServe, yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of those two. Um, but anyway, the day that I heard this thing, well, yeah, there's this new thing called Yahoo mail and you can get it you can pick it up on any computer i was like shut up i was like oh my god how much is that oh it's free shut up <laughs> right so you could go to anyone's computer and log on and it's web-based well, what does that mean and i must be one of the first people to ever have a yahoo email address <laughs> because i pounced on that idea and uh, it's the email I still have today. So, so that was in 99. That was in 99. So when I say, I think I started at the exact right time, I had that security of having a cell phone, of having internet cafes, but not being sort of held prisoner by all yeah. these tasks that you'd have to do or feel guilty if you didn't do. I've been on these uh, media trips with these so-called influencers and you know, vloggers and bloggers and stuff. And it is like that. You know, I, I, I'm older than most of them. So I, you know, I might have a good 20 years on some of them, but they, um, or more, <laughs> but I, I watch them and it, yeah, they are constantly on their phone and having to post, they have to post this many times a day and they have to do. And, uh, I'm, I'm almost relieved that I didn't, I don't do that. And I never wanted to do that. I, because I think they are missing something and not being in the moment and 
and traveling. But when you came back, I mean, did your friends and family notice a change in you in terms of like your personality and, and, and then what, how did you feel different? You know, I don't think so. It's not like I left when I was 17 or 18. I think that right. would be I mean, a, a, a different story, but I don't think I changed. You get more experience and the more experience you get, the more you realize you don't know. So I probably came back more humble than anything. I thought I would go out and see the world and become come back so, you know, worldly and wise. In fact, I came back on I ain't got a clue. Right. <laughs> I, just, I ain't got so people ask advice, you know, when they're gonna go walk across the country or something. I'm like, <sighs> well, that's what it I mean, in the world, one of the things of travel, it is it humbles you when you see how big the world is and you're just a small, tiny piece of it. And we get so wrapped up in, you know, we think our lives are so important. <laughs> and then you realize, oh, there's a billion Chinese who couldn't couldn't care less what I do. Yeah. You know, or any of us. Um, exactly. So, no, I don't think they noticed a change in me. Um, but, you know, it, it's five years. So so you're naturally going to grow in five years anyway. But even if I didn't go on the walk, I'd grow in five years. You know, everybody does. Five years is a long time in anyone's life. And they've they've gone through a lot of growth. Mine was probably accelerated because I'm living two steps outside my comfort zone every single day for five years. You're you're going to have accelerated growth. Um, was there something on that journey that surprised you, like you didn't expect? You know, like of all the things you look back on, is like you know what that surprised me the most. Maybe it was about people in general or a certain place. When you look back on something, it's like, you know, that was the big thing yeah. I took away. You know, prior to leaving, I had this vision in my head that of, of what this day-to-day walk would look like. And for some reason, I had this in my head that I was not going to be able to, you know, I wouldn't be seeing people because I'm going to be in the back of the beyonds for months and beg farmers to talk to me, <laughs> just to have human connection. <laughs> And I had prepared myself for that. So I would go out and just uh, go camping for a weekend just to get used to being alone. Okay. How am I going to tackle the loneliness? This was a big thing for leading up to it. How will I tackle this? I got to get used to this. Um, Because I'm probably half introvert, half extrovert. So, um, which I now know, I guess I didn't realize then I thought I was probably more extrovert at the time. So I thought, how am I going to handle this? So I really prepared myself through reading books and going out by myself for two, three days, etc. But in fact, the opposite, the polar opposite happened where there was this onslaught of people around me at all times. And I never even thought about preparing myself for that. So that blindsided me. You know, like, as I mentioned in Malaysia, that 200 people walking with me every day, all day and fussing and, you know, over my every move. And that was crazy time. So I wasn't used to that. And that blindsided me. What about, um, I mean, we were talking a pre iTunes world. I mean, uh, was there a lot of, uh, were you, did you have the headset? Were you listening to, you had books on tape? Did you have uh music or were you singing to yourself or talking to yourself what happened 
Great questions. Yes, I had this little yellow radio, the kind that you you, you put on your arm and those, you know. Like a joggers yeah, one? Yeah, okay. right? Let's go back 20 years. Yeah. And I think they only had FM radio or something. So I would try to find a local radio, uh, especially in English, which I remember walking into to Mumbai. They had English-speaking radio and, and it was really neat to hear the topics of the day, like what's going on in their culture that they're all talking about. So that was really interesting. But of course, you couldn't get radio all the time. I remember through Europe, of course, Armed Forces Radio, but you'd have to like tilt your head a certain way. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. And then I walked yeah. out like this. Yeah, you lose the signal. <laughs> but I did have a one of those CD Walkmans. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I you got to carry the CDs. Yes. So I only had this small amount of CDs, but I had the CD walker that um, it was the jogger, I think. So it wouldn't skip every time you made a move, you know? Oh, that was the updated one. So I got that. (laughs) And then I had my, like, I think it was probably 30 CDs or something. So even today, when one of those songs comes on, because I've heard them to death and back again. And when I hear one of those songs, boy, that just takes me right there. Music is a great trigger. Like there's some tunes that come on and I go right back to where I heard it the first time. Yeah. And smells like, you know, certain smells. I'll walk in and I'm like, Oh, I know this brings me right back. Yeah. It's funny. Did you at least like trade CDs or like at least get some new ones along the way? (laughs) Well, my budget was basically if I can't eat it, I can't buy it. So I remember, you know, it's like, uh, I remember I <laughs> bought a CD, uh, Van Morrison. Oh, okay. Sure. Yeah, so I bought a Van Morrison CD and, uh, boy, it's like, oh God, can I really spare that $12? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Or do I want to eat for the day? <laughs> right. So. Oh man. Do you remember a stretch of weather? What was the worst stretch of weather that you had? Do you remember where it was? Yeah. Gosh, uh, you know, I think that let's say 75% of my journey was in extreme heat, extreme heat. Let's start with, say, the Mojave Desert. You know, that was 105 to 108 degrees. And I did need some help through there because there's nowhere to stop. And I really health wise had to make sure I could drink enough water. And (laughs) we had this chart. My mom came and helped me. We had this chart going. It was uh, how how much water am I drinking versus how much am I peeing and times. <laughs> it's like now you haven't peed in an hour, so you need more water. But but um, the and I ran. I saved that. I still have that chart. It's very funny. I should frame that. Huh? <laughs> Your pee <laughs> chart. Water. Yeah, my so pee chart. Some some put it in the Airbnb that you have, and then people are like, "What is this?" Well, just hydrate yourself. Yeah, you don't need the mountains here. It's the altitude. You you might want to hydrate. A great conversation started. Yeah, but it, um, wow, it's like I mean, I know how. I mean, what gets me is humidity. So I mean, you're going through, yeah, you know, Malaysia and stuff. It's brutal. I mean, it, it is brutal, and Malaysia is the one that I think of because, ironically, the symptoms that you're not drinking enough are the same symptoms that you're drinking too much. Okay. 
So I don't know which is which because I'm drinking like a banshee. I'm just like, and remember, this is where hundreds of people are with me. And so everybody's drinking and, and, um, yet I had the screaming, screaming headache. And generally speaking, historically, I don't get headaches. Right. So, I mean, it's like, I thought my head would explode. It's just the throbbingness. And I knew that was a heat stroke symptom. But I'm like, but I can't drink anymore. And you can drown yourself too by drinking too much. So that happened a handful of times and Malaysia was the first time it happened. I, I think about that, that day that that was going on. I'm like, am I drinking too much or am I not drinking enough? What do I do? So I now know, of course, I needed electrolytes. Now they don't had, they didn't have electrolytes like we have now. You can get them in the powder form and um, they didn't have that, but I know now that's what I needed. So I stock up and have this electrolyte <laughs> in my car and pockets and <laughs> everywhere else. I don't get into that situation again, but Greece was one of those situations too. Heads throbbing. Am I drinking too much? Am I not drinking enough? What I can't drink anymore. Um, and then India too, extreme heat, 118 degrees. It got up to, so I had to walk in the morning hours where there's just enough light that you can see, but that, you know, it's only up to 108 at that point. Ugh, that was awful. Yeah. And you're not the, you know, you're kind of fair skinned. Uh, did you have like the giant, like sun hat and the, I, uh, <laughs> I took pretty, pretty good care. And I had the long sleeves, but really light cotton. And the problem is I only had one of those and I only had one pair of pants so I wore this one outfit the whole Oh, way. you you smelled great, I'm sure. Oh man. And it's just there's rips in it and holes and it's gray, it's got the stains. And one of my regrets is that I did not save that outfit when I got to Yeah, Mama. oh God. I've no, got I... a new one outfit that I wore for the next year. But that was so stinky, but sounds like you needed a clothes sponsor. <laughs> Well, I couldn't, you know, you got to carry everything. I know. Yeah. So I just, I, I suffered through that, you know, and who am I trying to impress? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you come back to Colorado, you start up your life again. And so you decide to write a book and how long did the book take? And you said, give me the, the short version of the getting ripped off by a publisher story. <laughs> yeah. So this is now 2009 and 10 that my book came out. So it did take me about six years to write the book. And while that is the truth, the fact of the matter is, is because I'm working on it at the nights and, you know, I had a part-time job and a full-time job and blah, blah, blah. Right. So it wasn't like six full years or anything, I think is what I'm trying to say. Anyway, so 2009, 2010, the self-publishing thing was becoming a thing, but still nowhere where it is today. Um, I talked to this true story. I started talking to a few like uh, bigger publishers and they said, well, there's no romance in here. Could you toss in some romance? <laughs> I'm like, but there wasn't any. You want me to just make it up? And they're like, well, if you could. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man, this just isn't for me. I'm we need more. I can hear them now. We need more of an eat, pray, love situation. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh man. So I found this small independent publisher and long story short, um, 
she didn't agree to any of the clauses in the contract. So I got out of that. Now, everyone had always told me, you got to keep your copyrights, whatever you do, keep your copyrights. I'm like, all right, already, I'll keep my copyrights. And I'd asked her, can I keep my copyrights? She says, yeah. I was like, well, that was easy. And as it turns out, the copyrights are only one rights of many that you as an author should keep. There are sales rights and distribution rights and foreign rights and digital rights. And I didn't have any of those. She had it all. I had my copyrights that meant nothing. And anyway, I uh, get out of this. I run for my life, essentially, and go to this weekend class about this new thing, self-publishing. And I kind of walk in with an attitude like, convince me, you know. <laughs> and uh, by lunchtime, I was that, that guy up front raising my hand and asking all the questions and the possibilities exploded. So I republished my own book and then started helping others. And in 2012, I started My Word Publishing, where we help authors professionally self-publish their books. And uh, and that's, that's where I am today, where um, we just... I'll get my little brag on and then I'll get off. <laughs> but there was this self-publishing watchdog group internationally that just gave us an excellence rating. And that was probably the greatest thing you could ever give me because that was kind of the mission is to start protecting authors from these decisions we're making. You know, like Prince and Taylor Swift, who just give their rights away when they're young and don't know any better. So they have to fight to get their songs back throughout the rest of their lives once they hit it big. And that's what I fight for authors for. No, you don't have to give up your rights. So we don't have any ownership owner. We just manage the project like a general contractor. We don't own your kitchen. We're just going to go you know, help you out. With Sell the your food. People. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, that's so great. That's yeah. So when did the, uh, the public speaking and the uh, inspirational speaking that, start? That sort of, uh, you know, started naturally. Um, I remember book readings. I, I, yeah, we do, I do a lot of book clubs. My my book is is that perfect demographic for um, book clubs. So we have a good time with those. And then pre COVID, and hopefully there's a post post COVID. Yeah, um, you know, book clubs have me, and we just eat and drink and. One glass of wine. I'm like, I gotta tell you this story. Yeah. So I'm in Malaysia. Ah. I gotta tell you this. So told <laughs> stories that are not in the book. So, uh, yeah, the, the speaking started when I was on my walk, when the Lions Club started getting involved, which is funny because, you know, Lions Club started taking care of me. So they said, listen, we're meeting tonight. Could you say a few words about your trip? I'm like, oh, I don't know. I can't, I can't speak in front of people. I don't know about that. <laughs> They're like, I don't just speak for a couple of minutes. Well, okay. How many people are there? 12 old men over the age of 80. It's like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. So I did it once. And then the next day they'd ask me the next club to do it. Next thing you know, it's like six months up the road in Australia. And now I'm doing accents and I <laughs> like a one man show and <laughs> doing skits and all the rest of it. And, um, and of course, over the, the rest of the five years, I, the story evolved and, and I started to learn what my, what the arcing stories were in the messaging and what I had to sort of pass on. And then of course, when I landed, people started asking me to speak. 
Um, so, yeah. If uh, there was one country, did you go through it and say, you know what? I'm going to stay here for a while. I'm digging this. That when you could have been like, you know, I'm at a beach. I'm I'm camping on a cliff in uh, I don't know the south of France or something. Was there somewhere you went? You know what? Maybe I'm going to park it here for a while. <laughs> no, I I had a mission. Ah, I had a mission, a vision, a focus, and and um, I. I I recognize some places were really cool and I might want to come back someday. And you know what I noticed is that like every two months, I noticed I just had to stop and hang for a few days, right? Generally, my my pace was walk for four or five days, take a day off, four or five days, take a day off, et cetera. That was kind of my pace. But then I started to realize I needed to stop for like three, four, five days every couple of months and just, um, you know, Get my recharge yeah clean again so i would start to plan where am i going to be roughly in two months it's like okay well let's plan it so i'm kind of in a cool place like um in thailand uh where was that that i stopped uh down there on the south isthmus uh phuket uh, phuket yeah yeah so i'm like okay i'm gonna stop there so I'm yeah. <laughs> five days you know and have a good time and then keep going so gotcha yeah it was there a place if you had to do it all over again you would have skipped like a air region it was like, man, if I, had, if I had to plan this out again, I would have completely avoided that part. Well, this is, there's gotta be a life story in here somewhere, but I looked at <laughs> India and I had to cross India. Right. And if it's you big, India is big. <laughs> it's Calcutta to Mumbai. It's like one road from Calcutta to Mumbai. Okay. It's the shortest route. That's what I'll take. Okay. Shortest route does not mean it's going to be the easiest, however. I could not have chosen a more difficult route because it's tribal territory. Um, it just didn't have the facilities. It was right after 9-11. So we've just gone to war in Afghanistan. The war in Iraq is starting to heat up. And I'm in the center area where there are a lot of, um, I mean, the population is heavily Muslim too. So, it, you know, I look at it, it was it was a very, 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 the toughest time of my life, hands down, no contest, right? Riots are breaking out in these towns that I'm walking through. If I could do it again, I would start in Calcutta and go to Mumbai, but I would go around the South Coast instead. Go through Goa and all that? Right, yeah. 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 That's the route I would have gone, and it would probably have taken, you know, five, six months versus three months. Three months was a haul. I mean, I was doing 24, 25, 26 miles a day. I was hauling and it probably came very close to kicking my ass. <laughs> <laughs> because wow. Heat as well. So I would have done that part differently. But otherwise, eh. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a, I mean, it's an amazing story. But now, I mean, do you, what's next for you? Do you look at this and, I mean, is there, is there a, I hate to use the term bucket list, and I say that every week when I use the term bucket list. So I guess maybe I don't hate the term so much. But I mean, is there a place that you want to go that you haven't been? And what's travel like for you now? Does it seem kind of boring just to go to a hotel and no, it's delightful. Go <laughs> okay. you know, it's, it's funny. Like if I do I go have a speaking engagement, I always pull up to some nice hotel. But I get to go in and check in and have a room. I don't have to pitch my tent in the back of the hotel. <laughs> I can actually stay 
in the hotel and go to the restaurant. And so, no, I did it and I did it to death. Uh, so there is not an ounce of want left in me to head back to that world um, at all. I sort of remember it fondly. I still have dreams slash nightmares <laughs> that I'm out there. Um, I just had a dream last week about that. I was doing it a second time. So the dream wasn't as if I were doing it the first time. It's like I had made a decision. I'm, I'm doing this a second time and I'm in the middle of my journey uh, going, you know, so why did I do this? <laughs> <laughs> what was your last trip out of the country? Um, me and some friends went to Mexico. Okay. And other than that, boy, I really don't have a want for traveling. I think if I were to do it again, it would be some kind of package deal. <laughs> you know, I'm just going to lay a cruise. In. You're just going to lay in a boat. <laughs> you guys just, I like being active. So I like those, um, those barge bike and barge trips through in Europe, you know? Oh yeah. 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 The, yeah, yeah, the, the Viking river cruises and that kind of thing. Yeah. So you don't have to pack and unpack and figure out your accommodation. That's so time consuming. So just uh, bike and uh, down the canal and jump onto the barge for dinner. It's like, there's my kind <laughs> of journey. Thank you. <laughs> well, you said before you were, um, before we started this, before we started recording that you have an Airbnb in Denver. Is yeah. this like in your, did you convert your a garage or something? Or do you have like a, like a duplex or? Uh, no, it's a house and right. So the, um, I have a separate entrance that goes down into a basement, which is like a garden level, garden level, meaning of course there's plenty of windows all the way around. Yeah. Right? So um, it's two bedroom, one bath, kitchenette. So, you know, most people that come here are just here to visit a nearby relative. So it's not like they're out traveling. Okay. You're not hosting like yeah. backpackers around the world no. and things. No. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it, it's fun to be on the other side of that though. <laughs> yeah. Well, now you sit and let people come to you rather than you go to them. And I do notice that even in the best of times, traveling can be tough because it's very time consuming. Where am I going? Uh, you got to get the map. And of course now you don't, <laughs> but um, right. I don't know the, you know, where do I go and how do I get there in the packing and repacking constantly? I mean, I packed and repacked every day for five years and I'm not boohooing. It's just that, you know, when you say, do you want to travel anymore? Do you have something on your bucket list? I've done it to death <laughs> if I've done it for two years. There might be some things in there I want to do, but um People would ask that naturally right when I finished, you know, do you have anything left you where you want to go or anything? It's like, no, but ask me in 10 years. <laughs> so what it's been 16, 17 years this summer. And I'm still and asking. I, yeah. I'm like, ask me in another 10. <laughs> another 10. I'm we'll, just kidding. we'll recircle this in ten, another 10 years. We'll do this. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this whole experience, and I always ask this to wrap it up and, and what do you think this trip I mean, in all the places you've been, what did it teach you about people in general? And what did you learn about yourself and maybe America and and looking at it from different angles? I mean, what did it teach you? How did it change you as a person? That's a great question, because um, when I look back, I think my biggest lessons were of, of discovering America and what it is all about. And so what does that mean? That means what does freedom really mean? What does freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of, of land of opportunity? One of these 
things really mean after visiting all these places. I love the um, the big melting pot of it and that everybody brought their their own words and recipes <laughs> with them and their own music and and they came in and and built a country. So I loved seeing that and I love that I now know that to my core. So that's my biggest lesson is the appreciation for what America really is. As far as how it changed me, I just think it's it's funny now that I'm in business and you go to all these like business development, these personal and, and professional development classes, and they're saying they have these terms for specific things. And I'm like, I did that on my life. That's what I did. For example, I don't know, an action plan and how to implement that action plan. And you should have it up where you can see it every day. I'm like, that's what I did. I had my schedule written out two months in advance. I was always two months in advance that on this day, I walk here to here. On this day, I walk here to here. On this day, blah, blah, blah. And I would stare at that schedule every day, which just means it's so clear to me every single day what I'm doing and that there is a road to get there. You know, there always is a road. And and that's what I do now. So I'm like, oh, <laughs> I guess I got, so I go to these professional development classes and I'm like, oh, that's what I did. I didn't know they had a fancy corporate term for it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I didn't know I was setting goals and brainstorming. I was just making a plan. Yeah. And, and and just the vision, okay, the constant vision. And I would do that all the time, like walking in India where it was so difficult. And I would visualize the, the last day. I would visualize getting on the plane, getting over to Turkey, you know, I'd visualize it and have a moment and close my eyes and to make it very real and tangible and clear. And that's what I do with business. So those kinds of lessons are, are just invaluable. So that's great. Well, where can people, okay, this is where you get your plugs in, speaking of business. Okay. <laughs> where can people get the book? Where can they see your, um, you have videos out there? You have uh, like records of all your, I mean, there's clips I've, I saw on the internet of you, uh, some of you from your walks and some from your speaking. So is that all at, at your website? Yeah. So it's my first and last name, Polly Latovsky. Uh, neither one is easy to spell. So there you go. Pollylatovsky.com. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, my book is on, I did it on Audible. Okay. Oh, <laughs> you read it? it? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. That's a lot of work. <laughs> Yeah, and of course, anyone you know, they always go, Ugh, "I don't like how I sound." <laughs> but nonetheless, it's on Audible. But it's called Three MPH: uh, The Adventures of One Woman's Walk Around the World, and uh, it's four hundred and sixteen pages. <laughs> to which now in the publishing world, I'm like, "You got to chop that thing down." <laughs> but there ain't another comma coming out of here, so. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's it. And, um, and my company now is my word publishing and my word publishing.com. If anyone wants to uh, talk about a book about their journey or anything like that. That's great. Well, Polly, thanks for doing this stick on the line here. And then, uh, I'm going to stop the recording, but, uh, I appreciate you doing this. Congratulations on 
on everything. Thanks for having me, Mike. Appreciate sure. it. Sure. Polly Latovsky, everyone. Oh.